Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, we are here. It is Monday evening, uh, January the 2nd. Um, back back in 2023, you know, ready, new year, new me, new you. How was your New Year's? Feels like same same me, same you, but like I said, that I, I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, happy new year to everyone, 2023, year three of the podcast. We're hoping for just bigger and better things this year and really excited to to get the year started. We're, we're going to be joined this week by Matthew Kinch, who has joined us once before, joined us about a year ago. And the focus of this episode is going to be on the economy. It's something that we talked about in so many episodes in 2022, but we felt like it deserved a full episode to try to look back at some of the factors that led to the highest inflation levels in 40 years in 2022 and to look ahead and see what might be coming this year. It's looking into a very murky crystal ball, but we're hopeful that Matt can, through his knowledge and expertise in some of these areas, give us a a little bit more insight into the varying possibilities that could happen over the next year. Yeah. Um, it, It always feels like we've got so much uncertainty on the horizon, but definitely with sort of the recent events and unfoldings in the economy, um, you know, it never feels more true than uh, than today. Yeah. So we're going to bring that on quickly because we're, we hope to have him for a good amount of time here. And what we anticipate will be a, a fascinating and complex discussion. Uh, but before I bring him on, a quick reminder that for the third year in a row, Ricky, this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, uh, when I was over your house for a little this pre-New Year's Eve gathering the other day, I noticed that you still had your Christmas tree up. And when I saw how beautiful it was, I was at a loss for words. Ooh. You didn't give me a chance to guess. <laughs> Maybe that's, that'll be the new direction in 23. All right. Uh, as Ricky actually mentioned on our last episode, if you are interested, Ken Hillwood, this is, you get the, the really some quality stuff. So when inflation increasing the prices of all these goods that may not be quite as quality. You might as well spend it on something on items that are quality over it with the guys at Cannon Hill would. And if you, yeah, maybe you can save that Christmas tree and they'll turn it into something for you. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, I, I don't know. I just offered that product doesn't exist. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's bring on that. All right, we are now very excited to welcome Matthew Kinch back to the program. He is the first two-time guest of A Gentleman's Disagreement. If you've been listening for a while, we had Matt on about a year ago. 
and had one of our most popular episodes ever, our second most popular episode of 2022, when he came on and we discussed the merits of the vaccine mandates that were hot in the streets at the time. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, I would definitely recommend going back. It's a really good conversation that has aged pretty well, I would say. Uh, but for those of you for whom uh, Matt is new, just a brief background on him. He went to Bryant University, where he graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Politics and Law and a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. He then went on and got his Master's in Science and Tax, the Master of Science in Taxation from Bryant. Then moved on to Suffolk University, where he graduated with a JD in law school, an MBA in a business school, and a Master of Laws in Taxation. He now works for Shamrock Home Loans full-time as the general counsel and chief compliance officer there. Matt would be the first to tell you that education does not equal intelligence. But with that said, he continues to be one of the most educated guests we've had on. So welcome back, Matt. Thank you so much. And I, I swear to God, I was about to open up with uh, well-educated does not equate to uh, intelligence. And quite frankly, some of the biggest morons I've ever met were in, was in higher education. Um, another fact, though, I, I didn't know that I'm the second, uh, the first person to come on two times. So uh, what an honor that is. And uh, again, thank you for having me. Uh, last conversation with uh, you, Brendan, and Ricky was absolutely fantastic. I had a great time doing it, and I know uh, y'all did too. So again, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Matt is unquestionably well-educated, and you can decide for yourself after this conversation whether or not you think he's intelligent. But the reason he is here is because we're going to talk the economy. It was one of the main stories of 2022 for both Ricky and I. And Matt, through both his education and his work experience, has some unique perspectives on the economy working in law and in business and in housing. And we're going to touch on all of those different things. So, um, Matt, I, I want to kick it to you. A little over a year ago, end of 2021, as we were heading into 2022, some of us saw inflation coming. Others of us, uh, including many in the current administration and my, my co-host over there, thought it was going to be more transitory. But what were some of the things that we, or those of us who did see coming, like, what are some of the things that really you saw as the main drivers of inflation over the course of the last 12, 16 months here? Well, when I think of inflation, you know, it's, it's, it's the rise, rise in prices over a set period of time. It's, it's essentially uh, too much money chasing too few goods. So um, there's, you know, to say that there's one or two things to contribute to inflation um, would be idiotic to say. Uh, because it's a multitude of factors. Um, but I think one very large contributing factor um, has been how much government printing uh, we have done um, in the past 12, 18 months. Um, uh, because when you when you have so much money circulating in the economy, it, it, it pretty much just creates uh, more opportunity to buy a limited source of goods, therefore running up the the price of, of those goods um, and, and so forth. So, it, you know, it's a very interesting time. Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of that printing was, was due to uh, economic relief uh, in the short term because of, of COVID and all of the implications um, that the pandemic caused um, to say that 
to say that there there weren't any types of uh, ramifications because of because of the pandemic would would be ill-minded but i i do think that a large portion of of why uh, inflation is where it's at is because of the the reckless printing uh, that that occurred yes. sure and we saw that i guess with like both administrations right the, the trump yeah. administration the first two rounds of pandemic relief out and then again going back a year or so ago I know the Biden administration, as they were coming in, they were worried, particularly because there was so much overlap between the Biden administration, and the former Obama administration. I think looking back, many people in the Obama administration felt like they had gone too small with their stimulus package. And that's why the recession was so prolonged. Here, Biden administration didn't want to make that mistake. And certainly that infusion of money helped overcook the economy, but it also provided a lot of much needed relief to a lot of people who were potentially struggling to pay their rents and pay their groceries. So is this just one of those like hindsight 2020 things of like everyone was just kind of doing the best they could at the time. And like, it's, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback them a year later. Yeah. So I, I think, I think the difference um, between, I mean, if we're going to break this down from administration to administration, um, yeah, you're, you're right in the sense of both, both administrations did, um, provide relief packages and printed money and put it in the circulation of the economy, um, relief purposes and so forth. Um, I think, I think under the Trump administration, um, it was, it was more of a reactive type, uh, type execution where we didn't really know what was going on. Um, and, and we're just, we're just trying to survive each day. Um, whereas I think with the last round of the, uh, the stimulus, uh, that occurred under the Biden administration, I think it could have been a little more thought out and calculated. Um, I, I personally don't think the last, uh, stimulus to, to come out, uh, should have, should have been passed. I think we were well out of, out of the woods or just about to be, Mm -hmm. um, But but you're but you're right, Brendan. Um, I do agree with you that it it is it was something that no one could have ever expected. Um, at least the the pandemic and and uh, the economic consequences that would lead to where we're at now. Um, everyone has an opinion about it, and you'll see if you turn on Fox or you'll turn on CNN, MSNBC. Um, they're they're providing commentary on what should have been done but you don't hear them talking about what should have been done when they're at, when people were actually doing it. So, so I, I would agree with you in that sense. So I, I, well, a, I got to revisit Kelly's first point that he sort of was one of us on the side of in predicting inflation. He has consistently been predicting inflation for like the last two years. So like to get, to get credit for it now, it's like, you know, a weatherman can be right every every once in a while um just by saying it's going to rain every day right so i i think there is a piece of that i don't think there's any way to to disagree with you guys that that what the some of the what that how the stimulus has contributed to our current situation i think it's interesting obviously like the first round of the stimulus sort of happened right effectively like right after covid's big unemployment wave which really means that like a lot of the goods and services that people were continuing to buy with that stimulus money had already been 
you know, manufactured, had already been shipped to where it needed to be. And so, you know, adding a bunch of money at this point in time to kind of clear out that inventory, not going to do a huge thing. But then you talk about, yeah, second and third round, all of a sudden, we're like a year, year and a half into the pandemic. A lot of people have been unemployed. So there's a lot fewer people making those goods. We know about some of the supply chain issues. So, I mean, Matt, you're absolutely right. Also that it there's, it's really difficult to pinpoint one thing. I think personally, after like trying to understand exactly where, how we got to where we are, um, thinking about, right, like the confluence of these supply chain issues, I'm, what I'm always more and more surprised about is that people are not focusing on Russia and Ukraine and how that's really contributing to our current situation. Because we have had previous incidents, I mean, like, you know, we can talk about the Trump stimulus, but even going back further than that, like, the tax cuts in 2017, a lot of other instances where we've injected money into the economy over the past 10 years and really haven't had much inflation to call for, right? That's like the whole modern, modern monetary policy that you can, governments can just keep printing money and you shouldn't really have inflation in the long run or like real inflation besides, you know, what's healthy for the economy. So, I, yeah, I guess I'm curious as to how you are putting, um, yeah, putting some of these geopolitical events that are layered on top of obviously everything that's happening with COVID into the equation of the drivers of inflation. So, yeah, I just have a quick, quick question on one of your, one of your comments you had there. Um, for example, like you said, just the tax cuts, right. And injecting money into the economy that way. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think that um, mere tax cuts alone would would inject money into the economy the way like a relief, like a COVID relief plan would, because effectively with tax cuts, you're just providing companies and individuals with more disposable income. So you're, you're essentially rerouting the income from the government back to the government to, to an individual spender or, or an entity, a corporation um, and so forth. So like, you know, what, could you just elaborate on that before we yeah, continue? Definitely. I mean, the money doesn't come from nowhere, right? And so when there wasn't significant cuts to government spending to offset the tax revenue decreases, that's deficit increase the same way that handing somebody $10 is. I mean, I don't, I don't think it was to the same extent, but there's certainly the same type of injecting money into the economy because- Trump wasn't able to really cut back on a ton of government spending the way that you would probably like to follow along with his with his tax cuts. A lot of the offsets that were, were just like projected, if I cut these taxes, I'll make these businesses, which will then pay other taxes. And that's how I'll like, if I grow the economy enough, then I can make up for any reduction in, in government revenues by decreasing taxes. Doesn't ever really, I mean, I could say the same thing for most of the Democratic, whatever they get out of the CBO and how they're going to pay for different things like Medicare and um, Obamacare and stuff like that. But I think the principle is equal and opposite in in, in both in both left and right administrations. Hmm. So <clears throat> what what are your thoughts about about the tax cuts? I know it's back in 2017, but we also have to note that 
they're due to expire or, or some of the provisions are due to expire um, in 2025. Um, because I think there was a lot of advantageous things coming from the 2017 tax cuts. Like, I, Ricky, I don't know how you file your taxes, um, but, but for me, I utilize a standard deduction um, and I file head of household. So, so, you know, I saw a large increase of, of, you know, my standard deduction, which in turn, uh, created, you know, less tax liability, if not a refund for me. Um, and, and I thought that was extremely beneficial, uh, 199A deduction where, uh, since they lowered the corporate tax rate to 21%, um, they also, uh, created, I call it the blue collar deduction because there's, there's limitations on law firms and so forth. Um, but they created an extra deduction for pass-through entities, um, which, which lower tax liability or create a larger refund. So I just, I, you know, I find I'm, the reason why I'm pointing this out is because as we're thinking about all of these things, considering all of these things, right, where the 2017 tax cuts for many people, um, it, was, it was tax advantageous for them. But as we're going through this scenario where the economy is, is going in, in, into some really, really hard tailwinds and uh, potentially a, a deep, deep winter. On top of that, you mentioned all the geopolitical considerations, all of the wars and so forth. And on top of that, the expiration of, of some very advantageous tax cuts. And on top of that, um, student loans about to kick back in. So, you know, there's just, you know, as I said at the outset, there's just a multitude of factors that, I don't know how the hell you bake them into an equation, but they're they're about to uh, it's it's about to be a, a rude awakening. I don't think we've seen the worst uh, of of what these tailwinds are are going to offer here. Yeah, no, I I I think I would I would totally agree with that. I mean, I think the yeah the 2017 tax cuts were interesting, right? Like, obviously, I I also benefited from the the hefty increase in the standard deduction but i don't know how, yeah how many how many did cuz there you know a, a lot of folks are in that like lower income tax bracket anyways where the standard deduction is is you know being higher is is better but in terms of an additional like if they're getting money back or whatever i think and yeah, this is where, you know, a fact check would be helpful. I think on average, like American households were getting maybe like a thousand dollars over the, you know, uh, in terms of refunds. And then, and then there was like some sort of fu funny business in terms of like reducing the amount of money that you were uh, being, that was being withheld. And then you were getting a smaller refund. And so whatever, I mean, I, I think the, the financial impact for the majority of households was not as significant as you would hope in sort of a, a deep tax cut. Now the the blue, uh, I think some of the blue collar provisions that didn't allow um, as as much uh, reductions for yeah folks making over certain amounts of money or using businesses and things like that. I, I I think I think some of those were certainly good. Obviously, there were some that were just particularly targeted at blue states by like reducing any offsets that you could you used to be able to take against your uh your state income tax so there i think there are some things there i think one of the things that i really find interesting is that right like a lot of the pandemic and the stimulus checks 
because they were hitting primarily like those on the on the on the lowest rungs of the economic ladder, I think their ability to contribute to inflation is probably significantly higher because every dollar in is going out. Whereas, you know, bigger deductions for higher income earners are often either being reinvested in the market, hitting savings accounts, maybe going to uh, a second property or something like that. I, th- I, I think it is, it is interesting. I don't, I would agree with you that it is going to continue to exacerbate the situation um, as, you know, in terms of like what the Fed is doing and what, um, and what continues to go on between between Russia and Ukraine. Um, that I think that is going to be a, a big problem. But I think as I still look at the the causes of the of, of our current wave of inflation, I think too little is continually made of what is going on in the supply side that for the last 15 years, let's say, you know, heading out of 2008, 2009, that we've been able to kind of produce our way out of these increasing deficits, right? Like the deficit spending has been going on and has been continuing to increase like year over year for the better part of this last decade. So what has really, really changed in our like supply demand equation that's getting us to this point where we're getting month over month inflation of like seven, eight percent. I think the energy part of the equation is a huge thing that nobody seems to be bringing up regularly, which is, you know, we still rely on fossil fuels. Russia, you know, behind us and a few others happens to be one of the largest producers of those fuels. And they no longer have like a global market to inject into. And so now, you know, that's, I think that that's really cascading across these sectors. And we're, for some reason, like not really talking about that. And thinking about like, okay, what's the Fed going to do to tackle inflation? I think I think that that is the scariest thing for me because I just don't feel like the Fed has the answer here. And maybe that's like the next question, right? Like, I don't know if you can maybe give a little bit of an overview of what are the Fed's tools here, but I'm curious also like what you think about how the Fed is responding and whether it's going to have the desired impact. So if if you look at, if you look at like a historical graph of Fed spikes, interest rates, it has been the most aggressive um, spikes in in, in history, um, where where you see a, a gradual upward trend um, historically. It's it's practically been a, a rocket ship on a graph. It's crazy. Um, the the Mortgage Bankers Association had to uh, reforecast their 2022 estimates like three times. It's, you know, and these, these are some of the brightest, you know, brightest and smart, smart people in the industry. Um, so it, it's, it's very scary because, you know, they have been very consistent and very outspoken about they'll keep raising interest rates for, for their foreseeable future. Right. And pretty much how it works is I always get this wrong. So, I, uh, I just want to point it out here. It's it's when um, when the Fed buys bonds, bonds prices go up, which in turn reduce interest rates, and vice versa. When the Fed sells bonds, bond prices go down, which in turn increases interest rates. So what the Fed has been doing is they pretty much have a stockpile of money, trillions and trillions of dollars, 
sitting on the balance sheet. And when they sell off these bonds, um, it, it creates more circulation uh, from from a currency standpoint. It injects money into the economy. And, and that's what in turn increases uh, interest rates. Um, the problem with that is the cost to lend is now more expensive. I personally have been experiencing this um, because um, so I, I started a coffee company in, in 2021 and, you know, our next big 2023, 2024 goal is to get an SBA loan. Um, I've met with a few folks who are able to um, uh, hook, hook me up with one. And it's, it, you know, pretty much the terms would be around two and a half, three percent above prime. But since since the Fed is increasing the rates literally every was it six eight weeks, um, you know that money to obtain that money is is just getting more and more and more expensive, right? And so when exactly is the time to pull the trigger? Well, not now. And I'm not the only one thinking this. This is also correlating to other areas of lending. Look at look at um, how much it's costing to finance a car. The, the leasing market has been out of control, out of control. Um, I, I personally leased my truck um, in 2021. My, my payment is around $550 um, a month. And that same, that same truck in this environment, it will it, be costing me around eight $900 if I were to lease it now. Um, and that's because that that the leasing market has just been buck wild, and the uh, to buy a car, the interest rates to buy a car have been too high. Um, let's not even let's not even get into houses yet, but you know we've seen a lot of uh, you know the 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 rates to to purchase a home or refinance a mortgage super high. It's crazy. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I I did like the home equity line thing that was prime. So, yeah, really thinking, really thinking I was going to do well there, and it's uh, it's definitely turned turned tail on me. You did you did a HELOC? Yeah, but it's huh. yeah, but a variable with like a prime something. Okay, uh, when it when it was like two or two and a half, three, and then but because it's variable. Now it's like six or seven. <laughs> yeah. So you've seen, sorry to get uh, personal on this. You've seen an increase already. You're, uh, wow. Sorry. I, I just, I, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it, you, you're feeling it as well. It's crazy right now. Um, the cost to lend is just so, it's insane. And, and I'm very curious to see what's going to happen um, when, when the, uh, the price there. So when, when folks have to start repaying their student loans back, a lot of people in a lot of people, our generation have been living for the past two years with the mindset, Oh, I don't have any student loan payment, yada, yada. So they've, they've accustomed their life to not having any type of monthly payment towards the student loans. Once that kicks back in, um, I suspect that I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen with, uh, with, refinancing uh, student loans uh, and, and privatizing them, seeing how interest rates will work that way as well. Because personally, 
um, I have some student loans and the federal rate I have is like, there's some loans that are like 7.5% for, for student loans. It's crazy. Um, I could, I could probably refinance that right now for three, 4%. Uh, but then you don't get the federal uh, benefits of, you know, what happens if they forgive loans, et cetera. So there's like a balancing scale of, of what to do. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I think that conversation is just a small part of how like inflation in the economy touches everyone's lives in, in different ways and why it's such an important, why it was such a big part of 2022 and heading into 2023. Matt, we had a, another guest on two episodes ago, Rand Wilson, he was a union labor organizer. And he, he touched on this about working class people's power. And we talked about it in political senses, how Bernie Sanders had tapped into it and Donald Trump had tapped into it. And uh, and he talked about how there's been a serious decline in working class power over the years. And one of the things when we were talking about how that manifests itself today is he was saying that, well, when we're looking at all of the factors of inflation and you and Ricky have named many of them, but Rand says one of the things that neither party is talking about enough is this idea of corporate profiteering and how these big companies are really the ones that have benefited from all of these supply side uh, supply chain issues that we've had over the last year. And we hear that from a couple of people. You hear from Elizabeth Warren, you hear from Bernie Sanders, but how much do you think that's been an issue in terms of driving inflation over the last year? And kind of a follow-up question to that, if it is an issue, what should the government, what role does the government really have to play in that? Yeah, so I'm, I've, I've, I haven't read any type of, you know, statistics or, you know, evidence contributing to um, like significant evidence contributing to uh, profiteering in, in, in a major way. I am more than confident it does happen. Um, And my initial reaction to that is I'd, I'd love to see a breakdown of, of how it all goes down. For example, um, when when inflation is incurring at such a rapid rate it is now, the first question I'm going to ask myself um, when I'm looking at a corporate profiteering scenario is, all right, well, is this company, how, how is this company leveraging that in order to increase profits? Because at the end of the day, corporations, companies, um, entities, they have a incentive to be profitable. But year over year, they also have an incentive to have some type of growth factor incorporating into their profitability. You know, they want to become more and more and more profitable. Um, so is, is, you know, corporate profiteering would, would, you know, be go beyond all of that measure and, and almost like recklessly, um, increasing, uh, you know, revenue, try to minimize expenses, um, in order to, to see absurd, um, you know, profit increase while just blaming it on inflation, you know, spiking up the, the cost or the, uh, the cost to purchase their product and so forth. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I would say at the end of the day, I, I don't know much about it. I really haven't studied it, but there's, there's definitely some things that initially come to mind when I, when I think of scenarios, Ricky, I'm sure you have, um, some some good stuff to say. So I'd I'd love to hear from you on this. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's one of those things that's that's really tough because all these like supply or all the input commodities are so volatile that you know corporations typically eat some of that volatility, right? You 
you don't want to raise prices on consumers at any one given time because they might look for an alternative supplier. They might look for an alternative good to replace. But when you have this kind of going across industries, now all of a sudden it's like a safe environment, like you were saying, that you could just, all right, let me bump the cost of this up 15% and tell, and you know, everyone will know that it's inflation. They won't go straight to me as the bad guy. And it's like almost this like weird scenario where I think corporations, because a lot of those input commodities, like the shipping, like energy, all that stuff, those prices are really moving a lot that it's not, it's, you know, they're not quite behaving as a cartel, but like, that's our protection against it, right? Like, Hey, you're going to leave profits on the table. If you have a higher than a higher price than you should, because someone else is going to come undercut you. But in this like environment, it feels like, you know, no one's very confident in the pricing of their goods that they can see opportunities. I think one of the big industries, and again, I should have come more armed with real facts around this, but the, you know, the auto industry with their, the, the shortage in the semiconductors and their, and the chips for new cars, right? They saw first trouble with, you know, inventory meeting demand, but then all of a sudden, they're selling for they're selling their cars above MSRP for like the first time in probably 30, 40 years. And now they're selling fewer cars, but they actually have a higher margin on each car. And they're, you know, maybe overall revenue is down a little bit, but net revenue is up, net profit is up. And so like a lot of those car companies were moving, either reducing production or laying people off. Like there were opportunities almost because the entire market was seeing this shortage in these semiconductors that like, okay, everyone's going to be short. So someone else isn't going to replace my Ford with another GM. It's just like, Hey, we can actually sell this car for five grand more than, than it's probably worth. And I think that that, that happens or is happening, but I, yeah, I'm curious of what you think like the government's role is like, I don't know. I don't know how much it is, you know, a concern, a really a going concern because we haven't really seen it in years past, right? Like typically the market will figure this out. And if there's an opportunity for someone to make more money by selling something for cheaper, they will. But in these, like in the, in this short-term environment where everything is like up in the air is the mark, like, you know, as you were saying, difficult for a new business to come in and get some capital to start to start up? Like, are we in those conditions that we can fix some of these problems ourselves? Or do should we rely on the government to say, hey, you're making too much money on this single car that you're selling. We, we need you to right size that. And I, Ricky, I feel like if, if there is some type of government role, I mean, first you have to look at, well, is it, is it a monopoly, right? Um, but but more more importantly, you know, yeah. it's a slippery slope if if the government um, has an active hand in all of this, because you'd, you'd hope that the market would correct itself and that there would be opportunity if, you know, say it's like a, you know, like a like a computer mouse, for example. Right. Um, you, you'd hope that there would be enough competitors out there to to find some type of competitive advantage for the same quality of mouse um, 
of, of what their competitor is, is charging for it. Um, so there's definitely, you know, the way our economic system is built, um, there's, there's ways to, to, uh, undermine the, the, you know, corporate, uh, profiteer, um, in this sense. Um, but again, it also depends. Well, is it a monopoly? Um, you know, where, where government intervention, you know, may, may have to take place. Not, not really sure. All right. So I want to come back to something that you had said earlier, where you think that things are going to get worse before they get better here. And while inflation, knock on wood, seems to have peaked back this past June, it peaked nine, over, I think it was 9.1% year over year. It's still way too high. I believe in December it was like 6.1%. And there was this issue around a term, which increasingly these days there seems to be conversations about what terms mean, because <laughs> in quarter one and quarter in quarter one and quarter two, um, the United States had a and they were in a recession. However, there were also like really opposing indicators because normally when you have a recession, some of the things people look at are unemployment, which has been consistently low all year, it's still under four percent, I think. Um, you the consumer demand is still really high. Wage wages are increasing, which is good, but also it's good for the like an individual, but bad for the economy because as so we've talked about the fed generally and last year they raised rates seven times which is like that exponential graph that you want we went from essentially zero to now at like 4.25 4.5 um there's been this class like this fabled uh quote-unquote like soft landing that the the head of the fed jerome powell is is aiming for where he's able to get inflation under control without sending us like careening into a recession Larry Summers, who was one of the economists who was on top of this from the start in the Biden administration, like pretty much mocked as as so like an out of touch economist whose heyday had passed him, has pretty much been like, there's no way that the Fed can steer us into this soft landing. He's like, in order to correct this inflation problem, we're going to have to go to a recession. It's going to hurt. So I'm, I'm curious, like what obviously these are like the some of the smartest, best economists in the world who are disagreeing about how to do this. So not that you're going to have an answer for it, but curious, like how you might see this playing out over the course of the year. I think there's, I think they're not done raising rates. Um, and, and again, as, as rates increase, it, it cools that demand. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, the unemployment rate. Um, I'd, I'd really like to talk about that a little more. I'm not really sure if this is the, the time to do so. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that it's going to be a soft landing at all. Um, because it's, I think demand's going to be cooled down too much or, and, and it's, it's, it's just going to lead to, um, I mean, we've already been seeing layoffs. Um, look at all the tech layoffs that, that have been occurring in the past four to four to five months. Um, I know many people who've been laid off. Um, and then when it comes to the unemployment rate, um, what, what type of people are we factoring into that equation? Um, because is it, is it easier to, to obtain a thirty five $40,000 job, or is it easier to t- obtain a hundred thousand dollar job? Um, so you have to look at all of those factors as well, seeing who's actually being laid off. I know that 
there's also been, I mean, Brendan, we're in the, we're in the legal industry. There's, there's also been a lot of uh, big law firms who have been quietly laying people off. Um, so it's, it's going to be really interesting to see um, because it, again, it is an industry by industry uh, standpoint. I know that from a, you know, from a mergers and acquisitions standpoint, um, I know a lot of um, my friends who are in that space, uh, the deal space is, is quiet. Um, financing has become expensive. Um, though private equity firms still do have unlimited pockets, uh, the cost to transact um, is, is, is becoming more and more expensive in that um, there's less deal, deals going on. Um, when I was doing mergers and acquisitions, I'd be on nine, 10, 11 active deals. Uh, some of my friends can, can barely get one to two deals right now. And so now you're starting to think, all right, there's, there's not as much uh, demand for, for talent. And now we're not becoming as profitable if, if profit, you know, if profitable. So now we're going to start laying some, some people off, whether middle management, whether senior associates and so forth. So, I think it's, it's, it's going to, there's going to be, it's, it's not going to obviously all happen at once and very industry by industry um, critical. I mean, mortgage industry, for example, it's been a slaughter fest in 2022. It's been a slaughter fest. If you go on national mortgage news, you see, you see, um, for example, Wells Fargo, they, they just, uh, they just ended their entire, uh, loan origination division, you know, and, and, you know, some companies have strapped their, their employees, scrapped their employees by 50%, very industry by industry. Uh, it won't all happen at once, but there will be a detrimental trickle effect. Yeah. So I actually want to stick with the housing industry briefly, because that's where I feel like the most news has been because mortgage rates for people in our, in our generation, which were historically low, like laughably so compared to like our parents' generation who are buying houses. I think my, my parents still talk about they got their first loan like 16% and they, they were laughing when my first loan was like, you know, four or 5%, which I then refinanced recently because it was still, it was too high relative to like recent. Um, but now all of a sudden when people are buying homes, I think mortgage rates are like seven and a half percent right now. And as you mentioned, are probably still going to increase significantly in the coming year obviously that cools housing demand and which will put a damper on housing prices which is probably a good thing unless you bought in the last six months which is that's that's the tough lock but i think it's it also like the trickle down effect to renting prices i know there's a there was a huge increase in homelessness over the past year which i think it goes really quietly because i think traditionally when we think of homeless people we think of people who are unemployed who maybe have substance use disorders have mental health disorders but it, it seems like there were more and more people that just like their wages weren't able to keep up with the the amount their rent was increasing so i know like housing is a massive industry and you <laughs> do a small part of it but it's that's the one when you say it's been a slaughter fest i think that's been kind of the one a of like if we can point to like the worst things about the inflation in the economy it's been housing that seems to have been like the biggest issue thus far. Yeah. Ricky, do you have any comments on that or did you want me to kind of run with it right now? Uh, yeah, no, I, this, this is definitely your wheelhouse. I'd love, I'd love to hear kind of what your thoughts are. Yeah. So um, let's, let's kind of talk about the the housing industry right now. And it's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting because housing um, it's very geographically based. 
Okay. Um, and depending on where you live, um, you know, let's, let's look at first building, building new houses and how that right now is, is extremely low. Um, there's a lot of bu- builders that have been going more towards single family um, developments because it's more profitable and you're seeing a lack of uh, multifamily um, and so forth um, as, as compared to, to uh, other, other times. Um, and the reason why building is, is so low um, is because of how much it costs to, to build a damn house nowadays. Um, and, and it's so crazy because materials are fluctuating by the day. And, and, you know, Bill, it's very unpredictable. And when you're trying to establish these, these budgets for, you know, a nine month project and you have material, you know, you're almost going to have to gamble and, and uh, maybe get into some type of option contract that hopefully goes the right way. So, so, you know, the risk to build a home um, has, has been in, in some areas um, too high to then, than what the reward actually is. And on top of that, yeah, so housing prices have been insane. Uh, we've seen crazy increases in housing prices. The problem with that is we're seeing, so so the MBA, the Mortgage, mortgage Banking Association, is predicting that by the end of 2023, mortgage rates are going to be around 57 5.8%. I believe that's the number. And when you're looking, when you're comparing that to uh, historical numbers, that's, that's pretty good. Brendan, I think you mentioned your parents first, mortgage was eight, 16% or something like that. Uh, I think that was probably back in the 1980s. Um, the problem we, we, we saw uh, in the 2021 run is housing prices got so expensive that, that people were paying 40, 50, $60,000 over asking and they're locked into like a two, 3% mortgage. Now what we're seeing uh, in, t- in today's market is, yeah, we have um, we have higher interest rates, which are obviously leading to higher monthly payments. But the 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 offer price is is, is a lot more competitive. You're not you're not going around offering sixty thousand above asking anymore. It's just not practical. Practical sellers are actually uh, continuing to drop prices in in a lot of areas. Um, we're going to see a lot of uh, uh, stabilization in the Northeast market. That's, you know, it's going to, it's, it's really going to maintain its, its home prices, but I believe in areas like Arizona and, and, uh, so forth, we're going to see some fluctuation. Um, but there's, there's a multitude of factors on why housing is such a pri- uh, a problem because you have a lot of these, um, freshman buyers who it's, it's, you know, first time home buyer, um, who might not be able to afford a high monthly payment for, you know, a two-year, three-year time to wait until rates decrease to refinance their loan into something a little more affordable. So that leaves them with the option of, all right, well, we're going to just continue to rent. Um, I think a lot of buyers that were in the market in 2021 um, are, are scared right now and on the fence about buying. So they're going to refer to renting for the time being. And when you create uh, an influx of, of renters, in addition to um, expenses to maintain those those properties. If you're in a commercial building or so forth, um, you have to pay the people. You have to pay, um, you know, keep the lights on and so forth. Um, 
you're seeing a huge in, increase in, in renting price. And that's also a problem. It's also contributing to higher prices. It's just another, it's just another detriment to the wallet. So there's, there's a multitude of factors to consider from building to, to uh, interest rates being, being as high as they are or were. They're actually seeing uh, some, some downward trend, which is promising, um, to, to more renters just maintaining to, to have their status quo of renting. Uh, to inflation, which is causing rent rent prices to to increase from the expense side of of these uh, of of these uh, building maintenance companies and so forth. So again, it's a multitude of factors. Um, there's not one one thing to point at. It's 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 these things that are all just floating in the air that are just causing um, some some crazy turbulence. So, I mean, I I think you hit on so many really interesting points for how like our housing market operates, right? Like on the one hand, you've got these interest rates, uh, the mortgage interest rates, which are sort of dictating how much on a monthly payment basis buyers can really go after. And obviously, you know, an additional $50,000 on the housing price at a 2% interest rate is whatever, put that to 7%, all of a sudden that becomes some real money over time. So from that perspective, we should see a little bit of cooling in demand. But then, like you said, that's scaring some people from even being in the market. So now we're seeing some uh, potentially like renters who would become homeowners are actually staying renters. So that's driving some increase. Like, I guess one of the things I wonder is under our current system, our construct of like how we manage rentals versus homeowners, like, is there a market correct? Like, are the market forces going to get us out of this? Or how do you see it trending? Right? I Yeah, I guess that that's something that I've been curious about, because I keep hearing about all the different forces that should eventually help, right? If, you know, home prices come down, then all of a sudden, people who are priced out of certain things should be able to buy. But if they used to rent at X and now have to rent an X plus, you know, half of that, you know, one and a half times, now all of a sudden their calculus is different again. Uh, yeah. Wondering what, what you're thinking about how our natural system is going to adapt to the current configuration. Yeah. I think, I think, um, well, one thing I forgot to mention first is, a, a big problem as well is local municipalities and all the red tape involved with building and, and getting approved to, you know, uh, build multifamilies and so forth. Um, so when you, when you bake that into the cake as well, it's just extra complexity. Um, but I, I think that what's, what's going to occur is um, in the next you know year, year and a half, two years, interest rates will, will come to, to a moderate, acceptable rate for most, most people. Um, and, and when that, when that is, when, when we arrive at that, uh, period in time, I think that a lot more folks who are trying to purchase in, in 2021, um, are, are going to get back out there and, and really, uh, really try to look for something. I think that it will also give, um, time for inflation to cool off which will moderate um, uh, the, the prices to, to, to build homes. 
Um, and I think that it will give folks a really good opportunity who have traditionally been renters to, to get out there and purchase a home. Um, I think home ownership is, is one of the most important, uh, biggest uh, financial decisions that you can make in your lifetime. Um, and, and Ricky, you said that you, you, you own a home, correct? Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, every month you're, you're paying, paying off that, that principal and interest. And over time, you know, you're going to have some equity in there and that they'll, they'll be able to, to, uh, to afford you some opportunities that otherwise wouldn't be afforded. Uh, if you, if you rent it, um, home ownership is, is so important. And, and if, um, and there's, and granted, there's a lot of great programs out there, uh, to enable folks to, to, um, purchase a, uh, a home. I'll give you a perfect example. There was a, uh, there was a program in Massachusetts through mass housing where, where they got, uh, they got some, some good grant money. And depending on which area you lived in, um, you could potentially get up to $50,000 of, of grant money to, to purchase a home and cover closing costs. And they were expecting this program to, to last like 12 months it lasted like 45, 50 days or something like that. It was, it was crazy how, how quick the money went and how, how many people were able to, to, to purchase homes. Um, but, but I think in due time, it, it will moderate itself out, but it, it's going to be interesting for, for the short term and, and the time being. One other thing that I wanted to touch on, because a lot of it is, as you and Ricky both just discussed, is like the market We'll, we'll figure things out. But then, as you said, there's there's so many things here that it, it feels irresponsible of any government to just be like, all right, we're just going to shrug our shoulders and wait for the market to figure it out while so many people are hurting right now. So not only is it irresponsible, but like it's not a good solution to try to get elected. So we have some housing issues, which can be dealt with somewhat on a federal level, like you said, through like grant programs, but are also more often need to be dealt with on like local levels. One other systemic economic policy I'd be curious about is immigration and how immigration has has fallen over the recent years. Um, and I'm talking particularly about legal immigration and how much you think that might help things where if we brought more workers, I mean, I think we all have experiences where it seems like every service industry has like a help wanted sign in the window they can't find enough workers and so what are you doing you have to like necessarily quote unquote overpay for workers which leads to you know wage increase which contributes to inflation and keeps unemployment low even though we still have all these empty jobs so i'd be curious if like that's a structural change you think could and should be addressed to help move us more quickly out of out of this like bad cycle of inflation and potentially avoid somewhat of a recession um, well, I think that if we were to pivot and focus more on legal immigration, it, it wouldn't be immediate. Right. So like it it would, it would, you know, be over time. And, and by then, hopefully, um, things, things start moving in the right direction. Um, but what I will say is, um, with all the illegal immigration that that has been occurring, um, I suspect that there will be many, many, many folks um, who have come to our 
to our country um, by illegal means. Um, they'll be out looking for work. They'll be out looking for jobs. And um, there, there will be many of them who, who are hired, you know, under the table by, by uh, companies and so forth. Um, usually for under, under, you know, what, what uh, state and federal laws uh, permit, uh, permit rather, um, that will be working in, in providing, providing uh, labor relief um, in, in certain, certain areas and industries. You know, we usually see a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, construction companies or, um, you know, small mom and pop shops, you know, whether it's builders or so forth, you know, it's, it's a risk reward for the uh, corporation because it's all about generating profit. Um, but it exposes them to, to, um, very, very many issues, uh, you know, relating to tax and labor laws and so forth. So it's going to be interesting to see. All right. And, and then just to wrap up here to pivot a little bit more towards the political side of things, as you look ahead, this is obviously the presidential, this is the run-up, this is declaration season over these next six months of people who are going to declare that they are running for president. Ricky and I have discussed it looks likely that President Biden is going to run again, but the Republican, aside from former President Trump, no one else has declared their candidacy yet. So is there anyone out there that you see, whether it is current President Biden, former President Trump, or someone else who could potentially run that you feel would be better for taking the economy in a more positive direction than it's been in over the last several years. So I'm first, I'm curious how, how the conversation with, um, I didn't watch that episode, how the conversation with Biden, um, running again, now, like why, why do you guys, he hasn't officially announced, has he? he? He hasn't. He said he was going to like, quote unquote, talk it over with his family over the holidays, but it, it seems increasingly likely everything that I've read, that seems like probably it looks like a February announcement. Yeah, so I've been I've been pretty firm on this. Um, Ricky's not going to like this comment, but I mean, he didn't like the last one from the last episode, so it's fine. You know, I think it's truly a shame that because what's happening with Biden right now, it's just elderly abuse. Um, he really needs to be in a nursing home, um, you know, drinking some warm milk, watching some TV. So he's not my guy. Um, never has been, never will be. Um, I. I uh, I'm very thrilled about uh, Trump uh, announcing his 24 candidacy. Um, I really, really like him uh, when it comes to competitors on the Republican side. Um, I suspect Ron DeSantis is, is going to make a bid um, when people say, hey, Matt, Trump or DeSantis, I respond by saying one of them started the revolution. One of them joined it midway through. So you, you kind of uh, pick up what I'm putting down and you see, you know, who I'm, who I'm faithful to, but on the uh, other side, um, Gabbard, do you think, do you think we'll ever see anything from her again? I know she just left the democratic party, but I think she's a strong, strong moderate. Um, and I'm, I'm very curious to see what, what her future holds. Um, because I think, you know, you know, there's going to be crazy freaking people on the left. There's going to be crazy freaking people on the right. And those folks are who, 
who are the loudest people, right? But I really do think that there's there's a moderate base that's that's way stronger than what people realize, where they're looking left, they're looking right, and they're saying, "Y'all are crazy," and and I think I think Gabbard um, would be able to to really resonate with those people because she's she's really shifted to to a moderate stance on on many things. Yeah, she she's certainly someone who's fascinating. I don't think we'll see her. 2024 but to keep her in mind down the road um so yeah that's that's all we have so we got matt's somewhat of his opinions on the economy and somewhat of his opinions on the political scene coming up in the next year and we'll have to see how it all plays out but matt uh once again thank you for joining us and two why don't we just run this back next january we'll just we'll just this could just be an annual thing (laughs) let's do it thanks for having me guys i really appreciate your time you guys are elite and uh, hopefully uh, soon we can schedule a time to go to Texas Roadhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Can't wait. <laughs> so thank you again to Matt for being so generous with his time and his knowledge. Great having him again here, Ricky. It felt like once we, we stopped in record, he just said that the thing with the economy is it's both a mile wide and a mile deep. So it's, it's hard to try to regulate that conversation, but I think we touched on a lot of the main factors that are contributing to the current economic situation here, not only in the United States, but globally. And was there anything in particular that you thought was interesting uh, that you took from that conversation? I mean, I, I thought that I thought, I definitely thought the entire conversation was interesting. I think the thing that keeps uh, is is potentially going to keep me up at night is that like there isn't you know we, we're sort of looking for like all right what's the corrective force even if we see a recession on the horizon yeah. is that going to yeah. like reset us in in a way to get us back on the right track and um yeah that is uh that is difficult um to to hear i mean you know matt thinking about it in in very much the same way just all these things having different feedback loops but none of them seeming to like you know get us back into the track that we had been in before right and i think what's good about this is everyone acknowledges how difficult this is and what maybe briefly connected to like what happened last year in the midterms where the economy was a disaster and like generally speaking historically when you have a bad economy the current people are going to get blamed for it and then we 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 noted multiple times before that not only did that not happen but every single senator incumbent senator was was reelected uh who was who was running for for that office and despite the terrible economy they didn't penalize the power the party that controlled all levels of government so maybe there is some sense of like this was there are a lot of lot of factors to this i don't know maybe that's giving the average voter too much credit but i, I will say and then listening to you and to Matt talk, I'm a big market guy, right? Like I think I've been pretty consistent. Like if I, if you could say I've been consistent on a few things over the course and not just these two years doing this podcast, but in general, it's like, let the market figure it out. Let's have less government and interference and intervention. But I do think there's something to be said where like, as I, as I put to Matt, like the government can't just responsibly just shrug its shoulders and say like, well, just wait for the market to come around. That's like, that's what capitalism is. And so like, we elect these people to make hard decisions and to try to figure things out. And so it brings up that 
quote that is famously attributed to Churchill after World War II when he said, like, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And then infamously repeated by Rahm Emanuel during the 2008 uh, recession. But that same type of thing is the Fed has their hammer, but it's really only the one hammer that they have. And they, they try to use it as like effectively as they can. But you would think that in a time of such across the board economic pain, like there either has been or there will be for so many people, that the government would take a look at some more systemic issues. And we talked we talked about a couple of them, housing and immigration, but like this would seem to be a time to try to re-examine some of those things, I would think. Yeah. I I, I mean, in listening to you talk and and some of the questions that you had for Matt, and then also listening to some of Matt's answers, i I feel like I, if there was, well, on the one hand, it feels like a silver lining on the other. Like, I'm not entirely sure we have the right people who are going to be advocating for these types of things, but right. The three biggest components of the CPI, the consumer price index that we sort of use to measure inflation, inflation are housing costs, transportation, and then, you know, sort of your everyday food and beverage type items. I think we've seen clearly that we cannot just spend our way out of this issue. And so like some of the things that Matt was talking about around like, all right, can we do some things around zoning laws and like red tape that makes it easier to build single family homes than multifamily homes when we know, right. Like getting some people who are ready to get out of the rental market is important to allow some of the people into the rental market at like a reasonable rate, right? And like figuring those types of solutions out, like where where are where can we really put our you know finger on the scale for those things that will sort of set us up for the future? Uh, obviously, multifamily housing is like is a must in urban areas, um, and and we're not doing it at nearly the pace that we can that we need to be. But I think this energy situation is also a real problem. Like we've been in this environment where energy has just gotten consistently cheaper. And that is something that people are not not accustomed to. And obviously being in the energy industry is something perhaps I, I overestimate its importance. But when I think about the fact that electricity or you know fuel oil for transportation goes into literally every single thing that we buy... And those prices are up, you know, natural gas is up one and a half, two two X what it's been for like, you know, on average for the last seven, six, seven years. I mean, that's a major, major difference in, in input costs that everybody's facing, whether it's your home residential electricity bill or, you know, whatever you're trying to build or, you know, products you're trying to get. So that is I think the other side of this equation that people are for some reason not honing in on. And I'm curious, yeah, I want to know what you, what what you think about this because you know Russia is a huge player in this in the energy space and we're trying to have our cake and eat it too a little bit around like we want you know we want to use our our stick here to try and get a resolution with Ukraine but also you know, are we being honest with ourselves in terms of what it's doing to both global supply chains as well as our own, you know, commodity costs? Yeah, I would take it 
a little more broad than just the situation that's happening in, in Ukraine, because I think that's fair with what you're saying, but there's obviously a trade-off here. Like, do we, would we allow any comp- any countries to do whatever they want if it meant that we kept, like, oil prices low? Don't answer that question. Um, you know, like, there are, there's obviously a trade-off in terms of what, like, the, the support that the United States provided in Ukraine. But I think what I take from your, your point there is not actually, like, the other side of things. To me, it's the same side of things of like, let's take this opportunity to examine all of our policies. And while we, while I just talked about like housing policies, immigration policies, let's talk about energy policies. Let's talk about corporate profiteering. I don't know necessarily, like, as Matt said, like, I don't, I haven't seen enough statistics to show that it exists, but people believe that it does. And if that's something you're passionate about, that you believe is an issue, let's, br- let's bring that back to the table. You know, in some ways I'd like to see a little more ambition from people and it's, in in terms of like bringing new and fresh ideas to the table of like let's, let's as opposed to just kind of rubber stamping like a nine hundred billion dollar uh, defense spending bill and a one point seven trillion dollar omnibus in which all this like nonsense is thrown in. I'm sorry, I'm now I'm just getting on a soapbox here, but it's like instead of just like kind of doing the status quo and, and kind of like shrugging your shoulders because inflation is not touching you as much and didn't touch you in like the latest elections, like can can we have some people that are like coming to the table with some ideas of like let let's do things maybe a little bit differently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh retweet definitely i think you know one of the one of the things that matt also said of course as soon as we hit pause this always happens to us was the idea um about like there is like the the technical terms of the recession and then that people's perception of the recession and i think as we see inflation continue to creep up you know we haven't really seen that the other side of the shoe drop where people kind of panic and i wonder i mean obviously we have seen a big sell off in the stock market but not nearly the you know market crashing terms it's actually felt sort of more gradual throughout the year this year i i wonder what sort of event it would have to take in order for for that like more traditional like you know real sort of scary situation to happen yeah well i think one of the reasons you haven't seen such panic is because all the stuff that we said in terms of unemployment still really low and while it was maybe increasing as matt pointed out correctly in like some specific sectors like oftentimes those are like higher end type sectors and people who maybe are able to either find a new job or able to live and i know that like we can debate the stimulus money back and forth but one of the reasons that this is this recession, if we are in one or are going to be in one, is different than 2008 is because people have more money in their bank accounts than they previously did. Like one of the main issues in 2008 where people were spending like way beyond their means and no one had any savings. I think there's still over a trillion dollars from the stimulus money that people still have. And so what you have is people who largely are still have jobs, their wages are going up, they still have some money in the bank. And so it, it's difficult, you know, maybe you see your grocery bill going up or your electricity bill going up, but you also see like your your check, you know, every week going up and the, the amount you have in your bank account maybe going up. And so you maybe are not understanding like how tenuous this current situation is and all of the stuff that I just said. Well, who has most of that trillion plus dollars in savings? Upper class people who is probably most likely or least likely to be affected by one week when unemployment goes up. It's it's upper class people. So I mean, as usual, I think the the more middle class and lower class people are the ones that are are walking a tightrope that maybe not everyone fully see, is aware of yet. Yeah, I I think I would add to 
that side of the or that part of the equation is some of the reforms that that we um, have made in in the in sort of the mortgage sector, where you know a lot of those highly variable rates that when the market started going sideways in 2008, people saw their, you know, payments on their homes going crazy. And then also obviously not being able to contribute toward the principal. Now we've got people, you know, it was most attractive to get into a 30 year fixed loan at two and a half, you know, 2.99% or whatever it was um, where that's not a, and that's not the consideration um, or or potentially like like you're saying, eight dollars, ten dollars on your utility bill is not five hundred dollars on your mortgage. And so that sort of the underpinning of our financial sort of market, in especially in the United States, is still so tied to kind of the housing market. I think that being maybe on more stable footing because the loans were made with more scrutiny to the lent on, on the borrowers, but also with more protection on the borrowers so that that when things started to go awry, you know, the home mortgage is not the first thing to go completely um, insane. Well, that's one of the changes we actually did make, right? Like we, yeah. we were in yeah. a really terrible situation, recession. We, as again, Matt said this, so this is credit to him when we turned off the recording here, but he was like, well, because we have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB in place, we are not facing the same dire situation in terms of like irresponsible lending that we were facing 14 years ago. But that was because of the specific change that we made. Like, I, I worry that we're just we're not going to make any changes and then it's going to be you know six months from now and we're, we're going to have that crash landing and now it's just a disaster. So hopefully that doesn't happen. It's still... It's got still a massively wide range of outcomes, as, as Matt said. It's who knows really where it's going to go. But obviously, as we said, it's a story that dominated 2022, and I expect to continue to be one of the dominant stories of 2023. Yeah. Uh, more questions than answers, perhaps, but um, really a illuminating discussion for sure. Yeah, it's always this is this felt like a yeah like a learning episode of just like continue to try to where I'm trying to dig myself out. So I get a little bit more of that mile and a little bit deeper into each of that mile too. So it's slowly by surely, surely trying to learn a little bit more about all of these things. So again, um, one final thank you to Matt. That was, that was great. And we certainly really appreciate him and appreciate everyone listening. Happy 2023, everybody. 
quiet truth is better than a rant. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your regal bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share, Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics Trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you'll leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find And chase the lion's head And folks are different mind Because though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz uh, uh.